up egon we have not done this in a while it's been too long my dude yeah yeah so hey guys uh we are back for an episode of text of the matter um today we're going to be doing hegel three essentially and dialectics four or five if not more (laughs) because it is all (laughs) Whatever it is, it's Hegel. So yeah. uh, I hope you have your uh, your your dialectic all 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 strapped up. Yeah, yes, strapped <laughs> up with the dialectic. If only, if only people would put down their guns and pick up their dialectics. Do you think a dialectic gun would shoot both people? Or yeah, no, <laughs> shoot both people and then bring them back to life. Yeah, yeah, it's part gun that kills both yeah. people. As but then well. resolves the kind yeah. resolves the conflict between them and then tr- they transcend and become best friends. Be, <laughs> See, Hegel can solve all the problems yeah. of the world just like that. No problem. Exactly. No problem. But, but like what we're doing here is we're going back to Hegel for a final time. And at the same time, we're gonna be talking about many things outside of Hegel. Um I know you're all sighing a sigh of relief right now yeah. out there in the YouTube world. And um, I think the end is both to say something about Hegel and to say something about why Hegel is both quite essential and has his problems and that those problems do not um, make it impossible to read him as one of the most rich thinkers of German idealism, of philosophy, and um, as one of the reasons why people still do philosophy and why it is an important endeavor, because he is demonstrative of some pretty essential qualities uh, Hell yeah. of, of the practice. Yeah, and we were, so we were kind of talking about this before we started recording, and I think one of the cool things about philosophy, one of the cool things about Hegel is the way that he deals with philosophy is interesting. And I think a lot of the like, um, especially contemporary critiques against him come from the process that he does his thinking through, which is, you know, he kind of approaches things with a beginner's mind. And his whole process of dialectical thinking is one where, you know, he's willing to go through the steps and, in order to go through those steps, there's a lot of, um, I don't want to call them dead ends along the way, but a lot of places that um, aren't philosophically sound, that aren't um, an end-all be-all. And, and specifically, he does this so he can pass through them, so he can critique uh, a very logical or rational thought to find where it's actually irrational, to find where it actually fails us as the truth, and to move forward from there. And so when talking about Hegel, I think it's important to remember this because he's going to pass through a lot of ideas that while you're reading them in a very large book that is very, you know, uh, dense, you can get angry, right? There's points that are frustrating or confusing, but he's always working towards the end of the book or working towards his, his sort of final thought. And so it's, he's interesting in that way and, and important because in so doing, you really can see how something like World War I and World War II happens, how um, we go from, you know, kind of imperialism to this NATO-based, um, you know, sort of state-sponsored demagoguery, right? Like, yeah. And, you know, through the Marxist wave, through the uh, sort of neo-fascist wave, sort of neoliberalism, like it all in some ways is sort of predicted or at least sort of um, the, the foundation is laid through Hegel, right? 
Yeah, and and it's there's also this curious uh, element where it's interesting to wonder to what extent is the is the groundwork laid, or to what extent is the tactility and flexibility of his system that is dialectics, that is not negativity as concepts. Do they allow for the sort of kind of revisionist interpretation of them into the present and therefore kind of revivifying our thoughts yeah. through their power, you know? And like, also like, you know, certain um, sort of more broader philosophical thoughts, right? Like obviously there's a huge connection between what Hegel does and Karl Marx. And, you know, as someone like Zizek would argue, there is kind of a re-enlivening of Marx through the, through his, through the interpretation of his work through Hegel. And so the kind of study of Hegel is really important in the sense that, um, that it does re-enliven these ideas and can sort of like shed light on parts that have gone fallow, right? Absolutely. And it's interesting where we start. So I, I, I think like starting with Hegel and starting from, to some extent, from where we ended prior, which was we, were, we ended with freedom and self-consciousness, and we were getting into some elements of reason with the unhappy consciousness. And these were concepts that were, are, were central to what's often called the slave master dialectic or... Um, the um, Lord and the Bondsman, right? Uh, and you see that he is laying down the groundwork of how individual consciousness, the relationship of individual consciousness is, both in the past in a historical feudal context, like that of the Lord and the Bondsman, as well as the sort of difficult consciousness of modernity um, end up compiling into through through senses through ideas through the process by which these things become shared meaning um, turn into a collective form of truth making right which is reason which is this total rationality Um, Marcuse, for instance, in Reason and Revolution, refers to the total movement of which Hegel was part of as idealist rationality, but I think it most directly sticks to him because in what he is describing, this idea that the human mind in its process of reasoning out the world is then coming into constant conflict with the sort of immediacy, the bare immediacy or actuality of reality. And therefore, like in that reflection, bringing that up to the level of ideas which are shared by other people and therefore worked out together, right? Means that the truth is all self-contained within this totality of thought. And later he will get into institutions, religious institutions, institution of the family, of culture in general, as being the next step into forming what he calls the absolute, right? And the absolute is being the end of philosophy proper, but also this transformative whole that never can really end at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And he, so, I mean, Hegel has this really interesting approach, right? Because, you know, so we did Critique of Pure Reason by Kant and Hegel is kind of taking these things that Kant has developed, you know, this, this sort of centralization of subjectivity. Um, But as we talked about with the Kant episode, right? Like, you know, there's a a sort of philosophical dead end there, it feels like where, um, you know, how can you say anything about truth if everything is subjective? And so, uh, you know, sort of an, an interesting way to think about what Hegel is doing is he is trying to find the universal in the subjective. And he does this through a lot of different ways, um, but primarily centering the fact that, that the subjective experience 
is a universal experience, right? So that yes. when I say here is a tree, you know, we talked about this in the preface episode, you know, that statement is a lie. Here is whatever is in front of you, right? This video, right? Yes. Even if I put a, a tree on the video, like, you know, there's not a tree in front of you, but but these statements hold true because of the universality of the eye, that any eye can be in my place looking at a tree and we can all say, yes, there is a tree. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, Hegel is, it, it's interesting because he's got this, this, uh, this system, right? He, they always call it Hegel's system. And, and he's trying to mm -hmm. take us from sense certainty through perception on through understanding through then self-certainty or self-consciousness, through the truth of reason, and then through bondage into freedom, which he associates with the absolute. And, um, you know, and it's, it's, I think Hegel is really fascinating in this because it can get really confusing in how he is constantly trying to shift the subject to a predicate and through this shift, which is kind of a rudimentary way to talk about dialectics outside of the like, you know, silly um, uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, yeah. right? Um, but but through this, he's Hegel is trying to find a universality in subjectivity, and trying to, as we see, he will center the nation as this expression, right, of of this sort of universal subject. Well, he and and he, and he does so by going through various elements that he sees as both constitutive and mm -hmm. as failing to grasp that that universality, right? Because as you mentioned before, he combines the particular and the universal as being sort of reciprocally linked and as being one in the same, two sides of the same coin, right? But only they they're only realized in the other um through let's say through a complex process of inversion synthesis and then transcendence right or, or sort of an imminent movement imminent as in coming from within mm -hmm. and becoming something greater than the internal thing was outside of itself so for instance, we can talk about the family, which is one of, to me, one of the most fascinating parts of the book, right? Because in it, he's trying to confront the divine, divine law. He's trying to confront the way in which the kind of spiritual thinking has meaning within the totality of knowledge. Because clearly it isn't the same thing as empirical knowledge. It isn't the same thing as science, right? right. But it obviously has this and especially at his own time, um, this monumental um, force on knowledge, on the way that people reason, on the totality of, of how culture is formed. And so he begins it by sort of outlining how the community as being this kind of basic unit of uh, moral determination and ordering of the community uh, is centered in the, in the family unit and the family unit as in a male father, a female mother, a female daughter, a male son, right? As this unit uh, of four, you know, the, the typical nuclear, uh, what is it? What are they? No, you got it. Nuclear, nuclear family. Nuclear, yeah. nuclear family. Right, yeah. Matt? Yeah, we have Matt off uh, saying yes. You're right, Michael. You 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 got it. The producer so, says it's I, right. It's got to be right. I'm so proud. I'm so proud of myself. Hey, hey, Matt. Say hey. Hey, what's up, y'all? Yeah. Say, Matt's been here the whole time. Yeah, but um, <laughs> so I think there's a. I connect two interesting quotes for me. One comes directly from Hegel, from Spirit as the larger section, but this coming from immediately prior to his section on the ethical order, which goes into human and divine knowledge, which we were just talking about before. At the end of it, in um, section 463, he says, the one extreme, the universal self-conscious spirit becomes 
to the individuality of man united with its other extreme, its form and element, with unconscious spirit. On the other hand, the divine law has its individualization, or the unconscious spirit of the individual, its real existence. And in the woman, through whom, as its middle term, the unconscious spirit rises out of its reality into actual existence, out of a state into which it's, it is unknowing and unconscious into the realm of conscious spirit, right? So in this way, there is this sort of unconscious, substantial element of spirit itself that is only realized synthetically and negatively through the woman, that through the particular woman passed from mother to daughter, then daughter to particip participation within a marriage and within a community sort of renders this unconscious element conscious to the totality, right? Through their sort of natural divinity. This is both problematic, but it is like conceptually powerful, right? Like, what is it if we abstract what femininity means and throw away Hegel's strict idea that it would be a cis woman, right? And instead take femininity to be a detached and freer category um, with more like substantial meaning than he even suggests in it, then all of a sudden divinity has new substance that we can look at right the way in which the unconscious that which cannot be realized through human law and through human order um like is suddenly becomes something that's far more complex and and far more interesting in the way that it interacts with categories now you can say again in an affirmative way that okay this limits uh these ideas because what about the masculine divide but for instance, here's a quote from Zizek that I think relates um, very interestingly. And he's, he's applying these ideas to Lacan, but Hegel is always in the background. So perhaps the incompatibility between Derrida and Deleuze can also be accounted for in terms of Lacan's formula of sexuation. What makes Derrida masculine is the persistence throughout his work of totalization with exception the search for a post-metaphysical way of thinking, for an escape from metaphysical closure, presuppo presupposes the violent gesture of universalization, of a leveling, equalization, unification of the whole field of intermetaphysical struggles. All attempts to break out of metaphysics from Kierkegaard to Marx, from Nietzsche to Heidegger, from Levinas to Levi-Strauss, ultimately remain within the horizon of the metaphysics of presence, as Derrida says. The same gesture is clearly discernible in Heidegger, for whom all reversals of metaphysics from Marx to Nietzsche, from Husserl to Sartre, remain within the horizon of the forgetting of being, ultimately caught in the technological nihilism of the accomplishment of metaphysics as well as in Adorno and Horkheimer, for whom all Western, and not only Western thought, is totalized, equalized, as the gradual deployment of the dialectic of enlightenment, which culminates in today's administered world, from Plato to NATO, as one used to say. In Derrida, the logic of totalizing ex exception finds its highest expression in the formula of justice, as the indeconstructible condi condition of deconstruction. Everything can be de deconstructed, with the exception of the indeconstructible condition of deconstruction itself. Perhaps it is this very gesture of violent equalization of the entire field against, with, against which one's position as exception is then formulated, which is the most elementary gesture of metaphysics. In clear contrast to Derrida, this gesture of violent equalization is absent from Deleuze's work. His gaze upon the tradition of philosophy is something like the gaze of God upon creation in, in God's reply to Job, as described by Chesterton. There is no norm which would allow us to level the field. Miracles are everywhere. 
every phenomenon perceived properly from a, a position which estranges it from its standard context is an exception. That is why what both Deleuze and Badiou call the minimal difference is not the gesture of totalizing the enemy performed by critics of metaphysics from Heidegger to Adorno and Derrida, but its opposite, a de-totalization of the enemy. Yeah, that's a long quote and it's complex, but what he's getting at there is that the masculine in a Hegelian sense and also in a Lacanian sense who is taking from Hegel is this totalizing force, is this attempt to make concrete and make whole, make absolute. And then at the same time, the feminine, which is realized in Deleuze, a man, is to suspend this in a sort of mystical indifference and love, right? And to take in everything as a possibility, as a potential, as a transformation, as a mirror, copy, simulacra. And that suddenly changes the dialectic, right? It no longer is constrained to its patriarchal system, the patriarchal system that seems to define it. It gains new valences. And that's one of the great powers of the Hegelian dialectic. But the Hegelian dialectic, as it has transitioned through time and through other people's thoughts, which is predicated by the dialectic itself. Well, and I think, I think given this section that we're speaking to on the divine law versus human law, um, which Hegel is sort of dividing as we're talking about between the woman and the man, between masculinity and femininity, is that, you know, I think one of Hegel's biggest contributions to the world is his belief that the dialectic is an action, that in all of his thinkings, he is centering action as vital to the change of everything. He's always fighting against stasis. He's always fighting against uh, what he calls um, analyzing dead things, right? Like cutting up and classifying something into its constituent parts, which to Hegel are dead. And so he's very interested in the, I don't want to say the mechanics because he's not looking at things in a Newtonian sense, um, but in a dynamic sense. And so, of course, Hegel is coming from some pretty piss poor uh, gender dynamics, writing in the uh, 17th century, as he was, and uh, in a Prussian society that was extremely patriarchal, extremely heteronormative, of course. Um, but let's, I think we have to look at what he's actually speaking to. And, and in this um, section in Phenomenology of the Spirit, what he's speaking to is what are the actions of these two roles in society, right? Absolutely. You have the feminine, you have the woman who is, right, childbearer, birth giver, life maker. And in that role, in that action, right, her connection to society, to, um, to the world is this, it has legacy, it's long term, it's universal, right? Um, Absolutely. He calls her the, uh, you know, kind of the ruler of the netherworld and that um, her interest, her activity inside of the family is one that has to answer to both her progeny, but also to her predecessors. Yes. And that our ancestors in many ways speak through her and in a kind of surprising turn, Hegel actually calls uh, women the, the head of the family, mm -hmm. despite it being Absolutely. Like a patriarchal system. And the reason for that is, okay, well, let's look at what is the man doing? And particularly in this uh, journey, right, from son to then a man to assuming husband, right, what happens is, you know, as the boy grows into a man, at a certain point, he must leave the family. He must yes. go out. He must make his own, right, which is super important to Hegel. He's all about this uh, world creation as sort of a, a, a 
pinpoint and uh, main point of his his theory. And, and so just what, very quickly from the individual to the collective, but yeah, right. And and so and then I'm glad you mentioned that because this is one of the interesting things about this dichotomy. And on on first blush, um, he's putting the woman in this or the female or the or however you want to refer to it, the mother in this very universal role. Yes. And man is going out in this very subjective individual role. Like he has yes. to go out on his own, make his own way, find his own job, his own wife, etc., make his own household, right? And and in a sense, construct a falsehood, construct this negativity of what is existing in the real in actuality unconsciously in the mother but right. go on and and as he refers to it as a as a citizen essentially right as a citizen as a subjective person who must meet other subjective people in society on equal terms this is where we get government from right this is where we get communal action or as he calls it human law and you can see it in this kind of reversal where all of a sudden the individual has to take on the task of the universal and in the same breath what happens to the um i'll say the matriarchal side of the family is in government becomes the individual and where he critiques government in that um where our representatives right or um you know, in his day, the sort of fine houses are supposed to be ruling with the thought of the common good in mind gets hijacked by the interests of the family through the yes. woman. And this is sort of where he gets really misogynistic if you're reading along mm -hmm. the book. But uh, if you can remove your critique of that for a moment and look at what he's setting up, you know, he's setting up in the relationship, in the dialectical relationship between the family and society in these like two main forms of what community is, this fight, this struggle between representing the universal interests through our kind of subjective roles in the world. And- Absolutely. You know, and this of course, um, leads to Hegel's, you know, focus and obsession with the nation state, which I think we should probably sure. discuss. Now, now I will say before that, what one thing that I think needs to be like entirely clarified, and I'm going to go to a little bit of Hegel from another book, um, okay. which is here translated as Science of Logic, uh, translated by A.V. Miller, um, which is entirely metaphysical whereas this is leading towards spirit and this as in phenomenology of spirit is leading towards his construction of the absolute as in this thing that contains all of humanity the the science of logic is uh more about the dialectic itself and its nitty-gritty details and so yeah, I don't again want to call it as epistemological but it it is in some way you know it, it's yes, more it's, comps it's, than or it's entirely like, conceptual yes you yeah, know okay, yeah. and 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 it, while the concepts are they have practical use you know and they are referring to practical objects like there isn't the same idea of he's describing society in itself or what society should be or how society works. There aren't a lot of ought statements in Hegel. It's sort of presumed that this is what is. But um, for instance, er, uh, relatively early in um, Science of Logic in the section being for self, he writes about the one and the void. And mm -hmm. he says, mm -hmm. the one is the void as the abstract relation of the negation to itself. However, the void as the nothing is absolutely distinct from the simple immediacy, the also affirmative being of the one. And since they stand in one and the same relation, namely that of the one, their difference is posited, but as distinct from the affirmative being of the one and nothing as the void is outside it. Being for self 
determined in this manner as the one and the void has again acquired a determinate being, right? It moves from this abstraction that was inside of it, the being st uh, as stated, your oneness as stated as being nothing at all, and that nothing then becoming this void outside of you now right. is determined, determined as a thing, right? Well, right. And, and if I can cut you off just briefly, I mean, yeah. in in this specific book, one of his major goals, if you will, is, you know, Hegel knows that mathematics has its place, it has its use function, but is really trying to place philosophy above mathematics because mathematics is something that's devoid of content. And yes. for Hegel, you can't separate essence and substance and in in kind of reinventing logic he's reinventing it in a way that uh you can't have form without content and you can also sustain contradictory statements contradictory forms contradictory contents simultaneously right and they can still retain meaning and then resolve themselves into new meaning, into transcended meaning. And like, if we go through to a little bit more to the end, right? So being for self determined in this manner as the one and the void has acquired a determinate being, the one and the void have negative relation to self for their common simple base, right? The self is the core of the one and the void. The moments of being for self emerge from this unity become external to themselves. So moments of nothingness and oneness are, are a series that combine into the self. Um, through the simple unity of these moments, there enters a determination of being and the unity thus reduces itself to being only one side and so to a determinate being. And in this is confronted by its other determination, the negation as such, right? The th That which is saying that it is not the self, th that which is the other, that which is the nothing, mm -hmm. that which is the outside. And that um, likewise as a determinate being of the nothing as the void, right? And so I this is highly abstract, but if you, you listen to these plays of words, right? you come to see what is happening at an abstract level over these relations between father and wife, son and daughter, divine and human law, individual and the community, the priest and the, and the abstract mother of, of, of divine law. Like, in this way, it becomes easier to understand the slight deviations of belief, right? right? Which are ultimately not so important. They're important in a historical sense, of course, if we're going to be materialist, but they aren't so important in like absolutely defining the conceptual content. And so when we talk about the state, right, as the result of this whole process, what he defines the state as and the way through which he realizes the state are two different things and have two different ends. And then they're also connected things that we have to kind of tease out how the process has produced the actual assumptions, beliefs, and arguments. Yeah, you know, and I mean, and, it, and it's important to understand his use of negativity of negation right I, I think this is one of the fundamental things that gets talked about a lot regarding hegel and regarding the dialectic but isn't necessarily expounded upon in a way that makes it a usable concept and you know all he's arguing is that you know the subject itself is a negation right we have negated all of the possible world to be this little meat puppet with our little <laughs> geist inside of us. Yes. And and so when he when when Hegel goes on and on about negation, this is what he's talking about. Not only are you know through holding inherently contradictory terms about ourselves, um, 
you know, and through making those be able to play nice to one another, to be something that can be that, that these two contradictory things can be the same thing, we negate sort of wrong ways of thinking. Um, but we also further define and definition is another way of looking at negation, right? And if you're defining what a tiger is, well, what are you doing? Really what you're saying, well, it's not a tree, it's not a lion, it's not a goat, you know, it's not a tabby cat. Um, and so he's fundamentally kind of flipping, I think, philosophy on its head in this way, because normally it's, whether it's philosophy or the sciences, it's looked at this as this affirmative process. Yeah. I'm affirming that this is a tiger, but in much of what Hegel does, he goes, well, no, no, that's not right. You are negating the universe to say that this is a tiger. And that, and, and then of course, this is where, you know, the meat and potatoes of Hegel really comes in because in that sentence, right, in, oh, this is a tiger, well, we're speaking about an individual tiger. So what makes the individual tiger the same as every other tiger that are all very different from one another? And, you know, and again, you know, I, you had this phrase earlier, you kind of called that quote you were reading wordplay. Yeah. And I think that's what like Hegel is the master of is he's like the master of wordplay where he's like always, you know, if you read Hegel with a sense of joy or wonder, like what's fun about it is, is it's he uses the logic of language to refute basic concepts at every turn that he can. Well, that's uh, what I was going to respond to what you were saying was that that is the beauty of Hegel. And, it, you know, in every at every point in which over the 20th century, Anglophone philosophy, positivist philosophy tried to deny Hegel and deny various um, European forms of philosophy that were spawned from Kant and Hegel because of their use of language, right? Mm -hmm. Because they didn't follow the law of non-contradiction. What is important to grasp here is that while negativity does define something that is concrete, it also defines something that is lively and abstract and meaningful in a different way and is, I believe, found predominantly in language in the way that there is no solving language as like Wittgenstein discovered when he realized that the Tractatus was not the perfect representation of language, but rather a bit of poetry, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that even though I don't think he ultimately solved it with his language games, he got closer to accepting negativity. And so when we say negativity, you can think about it in a highly conceptual way. You can also think of it in a very concrete way, in the way that we both deny that which is external to us as subjects, but also the way in which we construct languages and say what is and what is not, and that we require that what is not for meaning to be. Mm -hmm. If everything was, you know, what is, then there would be massive gaps in the way that we form meaning. And this is a essential mechanism to the dialectic. Well, right. I mean, just to use the sort of divine and human law we were talking about, the sort of, um, you know, male-female dialectic, right? If you look at the, the boy who then grows up and has to go out on his own and be this very individualist person who then becomes an old man, right, who maybe has more of a, of a shepherd's role to play in society where, um, you know, maybe through a life lived is trying to impart um laws or advice that that fits his role as someone who's been a brash young individual but has learned the importance of community and of communalism and i bring this up to say is that there is that personal negation too right there is the i was a child and now yes. i am an adult and one day i will negate my adultness by being an old man um, but at the same time, internalizing that whole process the whole time. And I was, a, I was a male who believed that I could produce human law. And then I actually became a participant in the creation of human law. And that 
and if we realize that sort of masculine element, what has been dis defined as classically masculine is actually available to all and should be available to all. Yeah. Well, and it I wonder becomes too, this more like creative possibility. And this is just pure speculation, but I often wonder what Hegel's response, if he were like plopped into today to, um, you know, just different things like uh, non-binary genders, or yes. gender augmentation and things like this, because I think to some extent he would really embrace it. Yeah, I would. It, it would seem so natural to his sense of identity that right. there would be these splits, deviations, mutations, constant evolution of identity, right? Like the, it, in, in a sense, it is both extremely continuous with him in the most positive way and continuous with him in the negative way in that like, you know, where Deleuze would say that maybe we have a, an obsession with identity that is, has gotten somewhat mutated by capital in a way that we didn't expect. But, but I, I certainly agree that like, you know, what, what Hegel would see in this is natural complexity natural yeah. movement of the substance of, yeah, and uh, if, if you want to think about it in a, in a more historical phenomenon too right like the rise of feminism in the 20th century yes and of suffrage which is something that hegel throughout his entire life even even when he starts to get weird and trying to defend monarchy at the end of his life and such um something that he fundamentally believed is universal suffrage and i think that you know, like if you want to look at the rise of, you know, the of feminism as a, as a feature in thought, I mean, I think to him it would make a lot of sense, especially when you're looking at a more atomized society that, you know, it's a necessity for women to be able to have that autonomy, to have that um, rational freedom that he's bequeathing to men in this book um, as a matter of due course. Yes. It would be a matter of due course, a matter of like the natural process of conflict. Simultaneously, I believe that he would also be critical of the idea that this ideology, that this belief system would hypothesize itself as a form of thought of which someone would identify themselves for life, right? Yeah. And that it would come to represent a social order that would be infinite. Now, this is where we get into the kind of Marxian question of the state, right? Where his ends in this abstraction of the absolute, for Marx, the problem for which, through which women would be struggling, one of their own class, right? Has real material concern. So whereas Hegel might say, well, you know, to say that you are a feminist, right, as a woman is somewhat one-sided, right? Once you've gone through this kind of abstract process of equalization with men, you know, you should be taking on in an abstract sense, the concept of masculinity, right? But when you talk about the Marxian question of class, right, it's not so much whether you know, the women are women or men or believe themselves feminine or masculine that determines their demand for suffrage, but the material concerns of their social reality, if they are suffering, if they have ac economic um, access, if they are alienated in their labor or even allowed to have their labor exploited, right? Yeah. Like these elements produce it. And you know, these are the differences between what would be Hegel's state, which was an important concept for its time, and then Marx's conception of states, government, and eventually socialism as a more total political project. Yeah, and, and I think it's, there's a very obvious through point to see how Marx comes from Hegel's ideas, especially given Hegel's insistence on a powerful state being necessary in this world that is constantly alienating itself, right? So, um, you know, for Hegel, uh, Hegel is where we find the sort of 
origination of this idea of alienation and it's different it's much different than it is in the marxian sense but uh it, it as to use a hegelian term the marxist sense is kind of imminent in uh his idea of of alienation and towards the end of phenomenology of spirit there's a section on culture called the self-alienated spirit which he calls culture yeah um and, and the reason and, well, I'm oh, sorry. sorry go on no oh, go i was on. just going to say that the reason that he he brings this up is essentially the way that he's looking at it is that uh through culture um you know the object of our thought is still empty and there's there's a, a kind of doubling that happens right that as he says uh in section 486 the spirit constructs for itself not merely a world right because the idea of this german idealism is that through the subject we are actually world creators um, so he says the spirit constructs for itself not merely a world, but a world that is double, divided and self-opposed. And for Hegel, this there's there's this idea that in making the subject universal, there must be a strong state to keep the subject from acting solely on individualistic wants and desires. Absolutely. And, had, the, the, that universalization has to take a concrete form right but his but in a way when you go back to kant and his ideas which suggested a universal government right universal governance in a sort of napoleonic way predictive or, or participating in that sort of conception of like a, a international liberalism um, Hegel seems to limit these things to, and culture to something that is geographically limited, right? That's, that's socially limited and that, that's limited by practice, right? And I think the absolute extends beyond that, right? In the way that- Yeah, it's very easy to dormant. read how that would go beyond. But, you know, for Hegel, it's like, it seems like language is the stopping point for him that he can't- Exactly, that he can't- he, get beyond where where well clearly the universalization of a people is the nation state because how could that expand beyond the language you speak and that's somehow exactly exactly container, right um and 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 again when you see later like a figure like benjamin a, a, a dialectical materialist uh tackling translation it's sort of an inversion of that problem. It's instead of limiting it to the idea that we cannot get past our language and this determines the limit of how we are going to organize society, it is instead how the concept is transformed in that process of translation from language to language and how that enriches and also complicates our ability to communicate within an industrial society and the work by which we participate in the universalization of thought concepts of a material society in the making of books in the translation right. of a film and you know the access of all of these new substantial materials um and i think uh, you know we were talking about this earlier um I really think it's quite interesting to think of all of these people who I think both of us are confronting, Marcuse, Adorno, Benjamin, and Horkheimer as, from the Frankfurt School, Zizek, and the other Slovenes that are currently really attacking dialectical materialism, um, uh, thinkers like Lukács, um, fr French thinkers like Kojev or um, Lefrab, who all have these very complex ideas and mixtures of Hegel and, um, and Marx, but are all very different, right? Well, and I think, um, oh, sorry. Oh, yeah. And I, I just simply was going to bring up like one specific articulation of this, which is coming from um, Lukács, who's writing in the 1920s, right? Um, he says, uh, he says, but Hegel's position today is the reverse of Marx's own. The problem with Marx is precisely to take his method and his system as we find them and to demonstrate that they form a coherent unity that must be preserved. 
The opposite is true of Hegel. The task he imposes is to separate out from the complex web of ideas with its sometimes glaring contradictions, all the seminal elements of his thought and rescue them as a vital intellectual force for the present. He is a more profitable and potent thinker than many people imagine. And as I see it, the more vigorously we set about the task of confronting this issue, the more clearly we will discern his fecundity and his power as a thinker, right? And this is quite interesting because he's at the height of German uh, socialism, at the height of right. the, the Russian Revolution. Um, yeah, bef before the, you know, the fascists take over Germany. But, it, but I mean, it make see, for me, it makes sense because, you know, as much as I hate this part of Hegel because, you know, I'm like a little anarchist. I like find a lot of our source of oppression, both spiritually as well as materially comes from the state, comes from bureaucracy, comes from administration. Um, but what you have happening, especially when Lukács is writing this, you know, with the, you know, death of Lenin, the ascendancy of Stalin. Absolutely. And, you know, you have the, the Soviets, uh, Originally, they want to plow through Poland, uh, you know, get a socialist republic in Germany. Uh, they get stopped in Poland. They decide to stop. And what does the USSR do? It becomes, it becomes the state that Hegel always wanted, with a big Absolutely. brother that's, um, you know, policing all your actions and making sure that you are working only for the collective good and not for the individualist good and and, and that your and that your individuality is defined by this identification of like these conceptual abstractions that are both concrete and that Lenin as a political figure existed but he's also dead and transformed into this image that is constantly looking over everyone and forced into their process of thought, their process of reflection. Like there's so many elements that you can see in the Stalinist state, both the positives that are ignored and the negatives that are quite apparent yeah. that are, are indicative of Hegel's thought. So we're reaching that witching hour and we don't want to, this isn't a college course. So I think we're gonna cut it off here and um, you can digest all the good Hegelian gooey goodness. And we're going to kick it off next week uh, with uh, looking more in the relationship between uh, Hegel and Karl Marx and uh, the kind of uh, ideological uh, communication that the two had and how uh, Marx was influenced by the dialectic. On Hegel's Great Baking Show, episode <laughs> six. <laughs> Oh, beautiful. So hit up that Patreon. We got stickies. Um, and uh, we post occasional content there like PDFs, things like that. Hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever you want. And um, we'll see you next time. Thank you, guys. Bye. Mm -hmm.